Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, A Man's Call to Significance. Most men spend their days and hours yearning, striving, scrapping, clawing, and straining to climb the ladder of success, importance, fame, and recognition. However, a man of God knows that true significance is not found in climbing some ladder of earthly accomplishments, but is found in an exalted and preeminent Christ. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. But a man's call to significance, it's a, it's a very important title here. You see, a man's yearning for significance would be the way that most of us feel this title. And this is going to be an interesting twist on it, but it's called a man's call to significance. And in this, I can really bait you in the wrong direction because there is a natural propensity within us as men to be significant. As if any of you have ever been to a marriage conference, they always have this one line, and that is that women desire to be loved and men desire to be respected. Okay? And I'm not going to argue it. It's definitely a truth. But men desire to be important. Men desire to be important in the eyes of their wives. Men desire technically to be important in the eyes of everyone. We want to be seen as valuable. We want to have worth. We want to have a sense of importance. And as a result, that can easily become a bait to our destruction because it is rooted in something which is actually true. But if you do not find the solace and the satisfaction for that yearning in Jesus Christ, you end up being anything but a great man in this earth. It doesn't mean that you're not known. It doesn't mean that... You don't have many likes on Facebook. It doesn't mean that your life is not understood or does not have any value to anyone out there. It has no value in heaven. It has no significance in and amongst the saints of God. It has no true picture of the glory and the manifest likeness of God Almighty in it. You see, we are called as men to significance, to actually do something with our life that changes the earth and will demonstrate the very nature of God to all the earth, to all the universe, all right? So that's just to set the stage, a man's call to significance. First, let's sort of lay the foundation for what has happened, what we are dealing with, the disappearance of the faithful man. I would say for most women, if they were to try and define what it is that they're looking for in a husband, I don't know that it would be the accurate statement. I remember asking Leslie that it was before we were even in a relationship. We were in some small group, and the question on the table was, what is it that you most desire in your future spouse? And so I actually still remember her answer, and it was integrity. That was actually what she said, was integrity. And I'm sure if you asked her now, she would have a much more flowery answer. She was... 16 when she answered it that way and yet there's still a kernel of something there and that is what most of us would term faithful in other words a man who when he says he's going to do something does it but a man who doesn't just say he's going to do something and do it once a man who always does what he says he's going to do but what is faith a faithful man in our mindset is one who is always there he is always present he is always attuned 
He is faithful to his job description. A faithful watchman or a faithful soldier doesn't run when the battle gets hot or doesn't flee when you know, an army starts marching on uh, the gates of the castle that he is watching over and he panics and runs. A faithful watchman stands guard and is always watchful and then handles the crisis that he faces faithfully. And so a faithful man is a description that most of us probably don't use, like all the women in here, if I were to say, what is the number one attribute you're looking for in your future husband? You might not use the word faithful, and yet it's probably one of the number one words to describe the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so it's a word I just sort of want to plant in your understanding to say, you know what, this is probably something you should be looking for. But we have a problem, the disappearance of the faithful man. Now, this is going to sound like uh, modern women in the world talking, and yet this is the word of God talking. This is really fascinating. The faithful man has perished from the earth. Who can find a faithful man? Doesn't that sound like a whole bunch of women wandering around looking? (laughs) Who can find a faithful man? The faithful disappear from among the sons of men. If you run to and fro through the streets and can find a man... Anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, then I will pardon Jerusalem, says God. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he really find the sort of men that bear faithfulness? So when you see the word faithful, you notice I just emphasized a big part of it. When you see the word faithful, It has a big word in it. It's a very significant word, and you're supposed to be full of it. In other words, if you're a faithful man, you're full of something. You can sort of finish the sentence of what you're full of. Unfortunately, there's a lot of men in the world that are full of the wrong thing. Full of self? How about that one? You ever heard a whole bunch of women say, yeah, they're all full of themselves? That's not being a faithful man. Who can find a faithful man? I'm going to read this scripture, I think, three times today in this message. But Proverbs 20, 6 through 7. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. It's interesting because it starts with most men. There's a way that men just sort of naturally are, and it's predictable. And so in the Proverbs, you can whip it out and say, yep, yep. The majority of men are going to go this way. And this is how they function. They say, hey, I'm fine. And when their wives say, but you could be so much more, honey. says, look, I'm so much better than that guy down the street. What are they doing? Listen to the first part of this line. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness. The great failure amongst masculinity oftentimes is self-justification. Their own goodness. I'm fine. I'm doing great. Because what are we after? Significance. We want to be something. And so the opposite of that would be, I'm nothing. I can't do this. Boy, am I a failure. What man who's after significance is ever going to start talking like that? You see, we want to be something. So what do we start by trumpeting? Ourselves. Look, I'm actually very impressive. No, I I can do it. I, I think I'm the man for the job. You know the great secret to significance starts with recognizing that you don't have goodness? Isn't that a funny starting point? How can you ever reach significance if you're nothing and you can't do it? That's the great irony of the gospel, isn't it? 
Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? It's interesting because in the context, it's contrasting a faithful man with one who trumpets his own goodness. A faithful man isn't one who trumpets his own goodness. He's the one that's trumpeting someone else's goodness. Who is that someone else? He is the true faithful one. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Faithful. So here's our two words that make it up. It's our mathematical equation. Faith. Now this is a very skimpish rendition of faith. I'm going to go into faith a little more. I've had a lot of messages on faith. This is not meant to be just a message on faith. But I still am going to cover it. It's the assurance that God is. He is able. He is truth. And he is faithful. When you know those things to be a fact, you have faith. It's not just faith in anything. It's not just faith that the Denver Broncos will win their game tonight. It is faith that God is. There are certain things that we can be solid in, secure in. We are sure in our step. So then full, filled to the brim and overflowing, stuffed to the edges, without room for anything else. Yeah, we're full. You come to a hotel, yeah, we're full. That means there's no more room. And so when you're faithful, what are you? Faith plus full equals a man who is filled to the brim and overflowing with faith. Isn't that a strange way of looking at faithful? But that's what it is. It's a man who is filled to the brim and overflowing with faith. So let's first of all talk about what faith is not. This is our quick list of what you don't want to have lingering in your soul. So this would be a faithless man. Wishy-washy, passive, neutral, unimpassioned, wobbly need, undecided, distracted, lacking in confidence. You see, that is not a faithful man. Faith is not wishy-washy. Faith is resolute. Faith is not passive. I know it sounds funny to, to say that faith is aggressive, but it is. Faith knows what it's after, and it goes after it. Faith knows what God wants, and it goes after it. Faith is not passive. Oh, just what will be will be. That's not how faith works. Faith knows what God is doing. Faith hears the command and responds to it. Faith is not neutral. Faith is taken aside. So if the devil's over here and Jesus is over here, what does faith do? Faith takes a side. What did Eve do in the Garden of Eden? She took a side. And as a result, she was cut off from God. You see, she put her faith in the lie of the devil. You put your faith in a lie, you die. You put your faith in the truth, you live. And that's been the story of life on earth. Unimpassioned. That's not what faith is. Faith is very impassioned. Wobbly need? No, faith is confident. Faith is sure. Undecided? No, faith made a decision. Distracted? No, faith has its eyes wide open and is very clear thinking and is not going to let anything over on this ledge or any noise from the devil get it off course. Lacking in confidence? Oh, no. A faithful man is very, very confident, but not in himself. He's very, very confident in the faithful one. The three facets to faith. So now let's talk about what faith is. And I'm going to break it into three facets. Like I said, I could give a lot of messages on faith. And so this isn't sort of the all-encompassing message. It's a very short snippet. But there's three facets that let's look at. Sort of like we're looking at a diamond from three different angles, and we're going to see it's all truth, and it's all what faith is and what makes up faith. First, decidedness. A lot of us 
only understand faith as this one. And some of us, when we understand faith, don't even have that in the definition. But for those of us that do understand faith, this would be one that we'd be most likely to have in our understanding. It's decidedness. It's assured, convinced, resolute, confident, decided, singular in focus, and all in. If this is true, if Jesus is the only means of salvation, what does faith do? I'm in. All in. But, but, but what about this? What if, it's, what if God doesn't come through for you? I'm all in. Whatever happens, happens. But I believe. Faith is all in. Faith is assured, convinced, resolute, confident, decided, singular in focus, and all in. The way we describe it here at Ellers, I put two pedestals up on stage. One of the pedestals has the Bible on it. The other one has an apple on it. And basically, over on this side, the apple is represented by the slick attorney. His hair is greased back. In fact, he has drips of grease dripping down his face. He's disgusting. And he has a syrupy voice, and he's always wooing uh, the, the one in the middle, which is you. He's always wooing the one in the soul to turn. And this is exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. He is attempting to distract and to turn the gaze of the soul towards the bait, that which is a deception, that which is a lie, a perversion. And so what we have on the opposite side is the truth. It's always been here. It never changes. God, the I am, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God didn't reinvent a truth when he came down as Jesus Christ. And he took on the form of a baby and grew up as a man. He didn't like change and alter truth. He is truth. And this truth has always been the same. And whenever you turn and believe in that truth, you live. So decidedness. Loyalty. Now think about it. When you, when you think of someone who has faith, who, how about I say it this way? A faithful husband? What would a faithful husband be? Well, he would be decided. Could you imagine? That would be a little awkward on wedding day. It's like, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And you're like, I, I'm not exactly sure. Can I have the benefits of marriage without having to make a decision today? No? Hey, buddy, if you want to have the benefits of covenant, then you need to make a decision. You see, decision is part and parcel of it. You can't be not the first decided in marriage. Could you imagine how miserable that would be to not be with a husband who's assured, convinced, resolute, confident, decided, singular, and focused, and all in in that marriage? That's not a very good marriage. Well, how about the second one? Loyal. When we think of a faithful man, we think of a man who's in it for the long haul. And no matter what happens, whether it's sickness or health, whether it's living in plenty or in want, it doesn't make any difference. He's loyal. Isn't that funny that that would be the term faithful? Oh, that's because loyalty is a part of faith. When you turn and believe, and you turn to the word of God and say, what you say goes in my life. You know what's going to happen over here? Trials and tribulations and testings and temptations. The enemy is going to make a lot of noise. And what's being tested? Your loyalty. Well, or you could say it this way, your faith. You see, God is saying, do you believe? And you say, yes, I do. And the enemy is saying, but what about this? What about this? You can't just keep your eyes on that. Look at this. Well, how about the man who's married? The man who's married makes a covenant with his eyes. And he keeps his gaze focused on one woman. He doesn't have the wandering eye and look at any other woman. He's not on the open market. I know it sounds extreme that a man can never pursue another relationship with a woman for the rest of his life. It's like, that's a little harsh, this covenant thing. 
Well, that's what a faithful man is, and no woman wants to marry a man who's not faithful. What do you think, God wants to have a bride who's not faithful, who's not loyal? When we make a covenant with the living God, loyalty is a part of faith. It's true to the covenant. It's immovable from position. It's unwilling to veer away, even for a moment, adamantly standing firm. By the way, if you're married, and for all the guys in here that aren't yet married, there isn't like a Friday night, just one Friday night in your marriage when you can go out and have a fling. That's just one night. I mean, in the whole course of 40 years, it was only one night. That one night can destroy you and can destroy your marriage. And so you never veer away even for a moment. So when we're talking about a faithful man, we're talking a man who is decided and who is loyal. And we're talking about a man with ardor. I like that word. Now, some of you are like, what in the world is that? I like that. It's another word for love, but it involves the concept of passion. And that really fits. When we're talking about marriage, it's like, yeah. And all, all the women in here are like, mm. You see, you want a man who is decided, loyal, and has ardor. But what is ardor? Passionate to defend. Hot-tempered toward all that would endanger. Aggressive and hostile toward all that may threaten the covenant bond. If there is anything that would ever attempt to invalidate or to harm the one you are in covenant with, what does the faithful man do? He literally will grab a whip and go into a temple and turn over money changers' tables. He will not stand for it. If there is anything that threatens the covenant bond that a man has with his wife, anything, no matter how small, he is hot-tempered over that. Not on my watch. What if it tries to bait his soul? What if it tries to woo him away? He's an ardent man. Oh, no. Oh, no, because he's passionate towards the one he's in covenant with. Well, when we are a faithful man towards the living God and towards his word, that means we are ardent. We have ardor. We, have, we are ardent in our pursuit. And we are not passive, but we are aggressive. And if anything attempts to disturb this covenant relationship that we have with our almighty God, no, we are a faithful man. So here's our question again. Now, I just described the ultimate man. I mean, that's exactly what we're after, and that's exactly what Scripture keeps saying. Hey, ah, yeah, have you ever seen a man like that? Yeah, I'm looking everywhere, and I can't seem to find a man like that. Who can find a faithful man is the question that rings through Scripture. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? I I don't want to hear about your goodness. I don't want to hear about your best efforts. I'm looking for something. They're like, well, what are you looking for? I'm looking for a faithful man. Well, that's impossible. No one can actually live that way. No one can actually be that way always, like true to one, loyal, and you know, be marked by a decidedness, be marked by a loyalty, and be marked by that ardor always. I mean, come on. But there's still a heart cry that we have, and is, can one be found? Have you ever seen a faithful man? I'm interested in a faithful man. And that's the cry of Scripture. Who can find it? The state of man. 
Now, this is somewhat of a depressing meditation, but it'll help us out. Because remember what this scripture says, most men will proclaim each his own goodness. How do you find a faithful man? First, you start by making it very clear. What you think is faithful is not faithful. I know know you're bragging in your own soul right now, guys. You're saying, you know, I think I got it together. I I, I think I'm the faithful man. I think we found one right here. You see, if you're proclaiming your own goodness, you're not the faithful man. That's the contrast with the faithful man. So look at this. Here's just a quick enunciation of the state of man. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. I know it sounds like I'm a broken record, doesn't it? There is none righteous. No, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. You get the point? Now, what were you saying about your goodness? You see, most men will proclaim their own goodness. But who can find a faithful man? Here's what I want to declare. If you're looking for goodness, don't look to Eric Ludy and say, I think that guy has it. If you come to me, I'm going to say, I don't have it, but I can tell you someone who does. You see, as a man, I've learned the secret that I am not the answer. I am not the faithful one. However, I know one who is. And that one who is, when I come to him, not proclaiming my own goodness, but proclaiming his goodness and my need for his goodness, what can he make me but a faithful man? The faith of the Son of God. Now, this is going to sound a little strange, almost like we're dealing with something that's grammatically incorrect. But in Scripture, what there is, there's a statement of the faith of God. Doesn't that sound strange? Because faith to us is a very simplistic concept. But faith is an operation. Faith is like faithfulness. And guess who happens to be the most faithful of all? His name is God. And very specifically, we're going to see that the Son of God, Jesus, the faith of the Son of God is one of the statements that Paul uses. The faith of Jesus Christ. And actually, we are supposed to live by the faith of Jesus Christ. So let me just go through this. It's going to seem like I'm... Like something's grammatically off because we're used to hearing it said faith in Jesus Christ, which is not an incorrect statement. We are supposed to believe in Jesus. But there is something in Scripture that we cannot miss, and that is that Scripture over and over and over again will talk about the faith of. So let's just look at this real quick. The faith of the Son of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Well, the faith of God? Yeah, well, that's what we've been talking about this whole time. You see, God marks the behavior that all of us are looking for. All of us are like, there's something missing. We're supposed to be something so much more. I know I'm supposed to be that way, but isn't this good enough? No, but you know who is good enough? You know who is perfectly righteous and does have That faithfulness, the way that you're supposed to have it, that's God. So, shall their their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Listen to Galatians 2. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, 
but by the faith of Jesus Christ. What a strange statement that is. How are you justified? Well, you're justified, according to this, by the faith of Jesus Christ. He did it right. It's not your goodness. It was his goodness that justifies you. It was his manhood that justified you. It was his performance, not yours. You're not justified by your own performance. You're justified by his faithfulness. Your husbandhood and your fatherhood and all the things that you desire to be faithful in, you try and cheer on your own goodness in that, you will fall short. But when you learn the secret of what causes you to rise to that whole new level of significance, it's not you. So it says, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. You see, look at But by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. So how did we even believe in Jesus Christ? Because of his faith. I know that sounds funny, but it was the faith of Jesus Christ that even led us to believe in Jesus Christ. That we might be justified by what? By the faith of Christ? And not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then look at Paul. And four verses later, he says something that all of us are very familiar with. This is one of the most commonly memorized scripture in the Bible. It says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, or the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, uh, what's Paul's fuel source? What's his enabling power? How is he living? He's living by the faith of the Son of God. What a strange thing to live by. You see, that's not a small thing. He's not living by his own goodness. He's not living by his own wherewithal, his own strength, his own determination, his own willpower. He's living by the willpower. He's living by the decidedness, the loyalty, and the ardor of Jesus Christ. You want to know what carries Paul? It's the same thing that must carry us. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. So we have access into the throne room of grace. How? We have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, by his great faithfulness. He did it. Did you see his decidedness? Did you see his loyalty? Did you see his ardor? That is the work. He was faithful. He carried it to completion. He did it. And by that great faithfulness, we have boldness and confidence to enter in. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So I'm I'm guessing my point has been made, that there is something that God has, that he's bringing to the table, and he is bringing the perfect model for it. You see, God's faith is, yes, a little different than ours. However, it's the same thing. God's kingdom operates by it. You cannot have any access into the life of God, the eternal life of God, without it, without faith. But how do you get it? Because we are faithless. 
But God has this faith and he brings it to us in and through the work of Jesus Christ, the faithful one. And that faithful work opens up an avenue, a way for faith to come to us, to awaken us. And then we suddenly have faith. It's like all those parables that talk about the talent of gold that's given or the mina of gold that's given. It's like, huh, what's this? You've been entrusted with something. You've been entrusted with grace, known as faith in this case. Believe. You have been given something by the work of the cross. And now the Holy Spirit has brought to you a grace of faith. It is from God, purchased by God. It is the operation of God. It's how his kingdom even works. And now what you do with that faith is of the utmost importance. He says, repent of listening to this voice and turn and believe. You have a responsibility with that talent of gold, that faith. Who can find a faithful man? So there's our question that keeps ringing in our ears today. And I don't know if you're still thinking, well, you know, I'm not that bad, Eric. I mean, what about me? I mean, can't you find me here? Who can find a faithful man? If we've been brought to our end, then we're ready to hear the solution. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. The faithful man. Well, his name's Jesus Christ. You see, the faithful man, the one that if we can just find one in this generation who walks uprightly and keeps judgment, then he will pardon Jerusalem. But there needs to be one. Is there even one? And what is the statement? There is one. And as a result, he can pardon Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem receives his pardon because a faithful man came. A faithful man, one faithful man came that was perfect in his decidedness, his loyalty, and his ardor. And he did it right. He lived as a man ought to live, and that's what righteousness is. He was perfectly righteous. He lived as he ought to live, in perfect concordance with the nature of God, never once violating it with either his tongue or his behavior. Perfection. He was the perfect man, also known as the faithful man, also known as the righteous man. So the three facets to the faith that saves. Here's our list from before. Decidedness. This is what Jesus was. Absolutely assured, convinced and resolute, confident, decided, singular in focus and all in. Can you think of a better description of Jesus Christ? That's what he was. He was all unto the Father and to the Father's glory. Whatever the Father asked, he was all in. Oh, what if that means being led into the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood? What if it was to be led to be a sacrifice or an offering of sin to hang, though he be guiltless, As a condemned criminal upon a cross, what did this man do who was so decided, who was so faithful? He says, not my will, but thine. He was faithful. He was faithful to the end. Decidedness, loyalty, true to the covenant, immovable from position, unwilling to veer away even for a moment, adamantly standing firm. He didn't buckle under. Though all the powers of hell seemed to have him for dinner on Passover night, he did not budge from his position. And at the very conclusion, he declares, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He gives the first line of Psalm 22. 
Psalm 22, read it. It's me. He didn't buckle. He didn't move from his position. He carried it all the way to the end. He was faithful to his bride and to his father. He did it perfectly. And then ardor, passionate to defend, hot tempered toward all that would endanger, aggressive and hostile toward all that may threaten the covenant bond. You see, most of us only see the meek and mild Jesus. And we're like, oh, he was just so soft and cuddly like a little fluffy lamb. And you don't quite know the full story. Because though he is a lamb unto those who are humble, he is a lion unto those that are proud. And when he came to this earth, he didn't come to judge, but to save the world, he says. That's because he didn't come to judge us, but he did come to judge. You know that when Jesus came to that cross, he came and it was a judgment? It was a judgment day. But it wasn't you that got judged. You were saved that day. He judged sin, the devil, darkness, the flesh. He literally crushed the serpent's head. He's a man of violence, hot-tempered. He was. Isn't that an interesting thought that Jesus, though he looks weak, what was he doing in his weakness? Crushing all the powers of darkness. He wasn't showing a lot of mercy. He was giving them what their due was. And on the last judgment, he will do the same. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment. If you are humble, you get him as a lamb. If you are hostile and rebellious and reject his mercies, you will get the judge of judges. You will get the roaring lion. You will get the consuming fire. Yes, he was decided, he was loyal, and he was ardent. The faithful man. So... Is there a possibility? Who can find a faithful man? And then all of us rise up in our soul. I've found one. I have found the faithful man. You know the secret to a man being a faithful man? Because I don't want to make it sound so esoterical that you know, we could never be faithful. No, we are supposed to be faithful. We are called to be faithful. And every single one of us as men in here are commissioned by the living God to follow in his footsteps. But I don't have it. When I look at my own goodness, I say, I have failed. However, I found his goodness. When I look at my own faithfulness, I say, I'm not quite right. Something's wrong with me. But then I see the faithful man. When I see my inability and I see his ability, suddenly I found the secret to becoming the faithful man. So what, who is the faithful man? Well, it's the child of the faithful man, Jesus Christ. When you are born again, you are born anew. You have a new life. No longer are you in Adam, the unfaithful man. But you are now born anew in Christ Jesus, the faithful man. So now, in a sense, your DNA has shifted. And though you were so prone to wander, now you actually have, in Christ Jesus, you are prone to do what is right. I know that sounds completely foreign to some of you, but that's how the Spirit of God renews and remakes us. So that actually we have a desire for righteousness. Remember we used to make fun of it? And so as a result, we would compromise because we couldn't handle the mocking. We were not decided, we were not loyal, and we were not arduous. We did not prove faithful, but he did. And so when we turn to him, he changes us, and we are born anew. Our affections change, our thinking changes. And we begin to esteem the things of heaven instead of the things of this earth. The way I reason now is so opposite the way I used to reason. 
The things I delight in, the things I enjoy doing with my time are completely opposite of the things I used to enjoy. What's happened to me? What happened to Eric Ludy? I remember one of my friends in high school saw me after I gave my life radically to Jesus in college. He's like, what happened to you, man? What happened to the Eric I once loved? <laughs> uh, he's, he's dead. He's dead. Uh, <clears throat> so who is the faithful man? The faithful man is the man who has exchanged out confidence or faith in his own strength, goodness, talent, righteousness, wit, or willpower, and has placed his confidence or his faith entirely in God Almighty. So here, here I am, a man, and I'm justifying my own goodness. I'm lugging it around. You can call it goodness. It's like all that I possess. It's my talents. It's my ability. It's my wit. It's my intellectual capacities. It's, it's my different abilities that I have. I bring a lot to the table. And so do you. You can brag and say, not as much as I bring to the table. And we could vie and say, well, you know, look at all that I'm giving. Look at all that I can give to God. God really wants someone like me. Have you ever heard it said when people say, boy, if God could just get a hold of that man, how he could be used in the kingdom of heaven? Because we're looking at natural talents. But that's not how God evaluates people. You see, God is the only thing that we need to turn the world on its head. We do not just need natural talent. I'm not saying that God will not use natural talent. I'm saying that's not how he thinks and reasons. He's not just like, if I could just somehow get that guy. That's not how he's thinking. What that guy should be thinking is if there was only way I could get that God. God is the talent. God is the powers. If he needs men to do his work, God is able. He can do it. He condescends to choose us. He condescends to call us. So, this is a man who is faithful. He is no more in the service of his own personal interests and agenda, but now he is wholly given to the service of God's interests in this earth. So before, he's always been about self, his own significance, the pursuit of his own glory, the pursuit of his own reputation, He's always thinking day in and day out, how is he perceived? Is he liked? Is he popular? Do people follow him or would they follow him? Do these girls like him? Do they find him attractive and handsome? This is how a guy reasons. Now, I'm not saying that girls don't reason the same way. It's just they use different terminology. As Hudson, when I, when I said something the other day, how cute he was, he's like, oh, don't say that. I'm not cute. Uh, and I said, what are you, handsome? He goes, uh. <laughs> That's the exact quote I used to give to my mom, too, when she'd call me cute or I don't know what it was. Oh, that's really beautiful, Eric. That's not beautiful. It's like a picture. And I'm like, it's handsome. Uh, in other words, we have different terminology, maybe, but the same root issue, and that is that we want to be appreciated. We want to be liked. We want to be loved. We want to be important. And so we're lugging around all of us. We can call it our goodness. And we're carrying it around, and we're saying, do you like it? Do you like it? And that is how we are seeking to be esteemed, and that is how we are seeking to find significance. It is what we bring to the table. And as a result, when we come to God with our goodness, and we say, do you like it? He says, oh, Eric, you were cut off from me for all eternity and deserve eternal judgment because of what you're carrying around right now. That's his response. The world likes it. They're like, Eric, that is really impressive. What do you think? Eric, that is so good. Eric, you could really make an impact on this world. What do you think? Do you think I can make a difference? Do you think I'm a leader? Do you think I'm important? Eric, 
You are something special. Thank you. Thank you. I needed to hear that. Could someone put their arm around me and tell me how my goodness is enough? Someone, please, just give me the squeeze. Give me that notice. Give me that attention. Thank you. Thank you, church around me. I grew up with a church patting me on the back. Oh, wow. What I have to offer to God is the same offer that Cain had. It's my effort. It's my best. And I was Esau, spurning the birthright. I don't, I don't need, God, what you have. I have something to offer. I'm, I'm a hairy hunter. I, I can go out to the field and get my own food. I don't need you to provide for me. And it says God hated Esau, but Jacob he loved. It's the second born that he loves. It's the life born of the Spirit. You see, you must be born again. You must be the second born. Adam is the first. Jesus is the second. And unless you're found in the second, you are rejected. But all of us are trying to be the first and somehow pacify God with our goodness, our Adamness. And so we're carrying it around, and God says, Everyone may love it, Eric, but I don't. It cannot please me. And so we're like, well, what am I supposed to do, God? I have this great stuff here. I've been working on it my whole life. He says, uh, <clears throat> will you throw it overboard? Will you lay it down? But God, this, this is like me. This is my talent, my abilities. This is everything the world esteems in me. I, I've polished it. I've spent so much time with this. And you can even hear God talking amongst himself as the Trinity. Who can find a faithful man? Every man down there is esteeming his own goodness, trying to justify himself with what he is holding. But do you realize that Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save you? But to get Jesus, here's the trick. You must lay down your goodness. All this that you're carrying around, you have to throw it away. You have to give it up. You have to forsake it. And when you finally forsake it, then Jesus becomes your goodness. Jesus becomes your righteousness. Jesus becomes your significance. Where's your significance? You're carrying it around. What do you think? I, I, I worked really hard on that. Look at it again. I, I think you'll like it even the second time. Whenever any of you that have talents, artistic talents, when you're doing something like writing a song, drawing a picture, whatever it is, what are you thinking when you're doing it? We're oftentimes thinking of who will see it and how they will respond to it. And it's cute when it's a little kid. But the older you get, the more awkward it gets when you are so needy for the approval of men, but the whole while we are forsaking the clear knowledge that Scripture has given us that we do not have the approval of God. Do not try and justify your own goodness, but lay it down. What's a faithful man? A man who has exchanged out confidence or faith in his own strength, goodness, talent, righteousness, wit, or willpower, and has placed his confidence, faith, entirely in God Almighty. No more is he in the service of his own personal interests and agenda, but now he is wholly given to the service of God's interests in this earth. This man now lives by the faith of the Son of God, and therefore is assured, convinced, resolute, confident, decided, singular, and focused, and all in. He is true to the covenant, immovable from position, unwilling to veer away, even for a moment, and adamantly standing firm. And he is passionate to defend, hot-tempered toward all that would endanger, and aggressive and hostile toward all that may threaten the covenant bond. Why? 
because he recognized that in and of himself, he's not a faithful man. In and of himself, he's a faithless man. In and of himself, he's a selfish man because what's at the center of his life? What's he carrying? Him, his own recognition, his own pursuit and yearning for significance. But how does a man find significance? Not in this. He sets that down and receives Jesus. So now what is he carrying around? What's his bragging point? What's his boast? Uh, Do you see what I have? <laughs> I, have I have Jesus Christ. Uh, have you seen what I have? What do you think about this? And everyone spits on you. Oh, you don't appreciate this? Oh, this is amazing. What do you think? And they you know, hit you in the cheek. And you turn to them the other also. You see, you've been given something, and now your value and your significance is not of this earth. It's of heaven, and no one can take it away from you. Suddenly, a man is as a man ought to be, because now a man isn't pining after the approval of those around him. He's not looking for his peer group to pat him on the back and say, you're one of us. He now has his identity firmly established in heaven. I'm in Christ Jesus, and Christ is in me. Humility, the starting line of great manhood. So say we all decide to go, let's go after this great manhood. Eric, where do we start? Well, let's, let's talk about that. Where do we start? If we want to be great men, because we really do want to be significant, I want to be significant, all right? Start by being willing to throw your own yearning for significance overboard. Are you willing to be nothing? Huh? That sounds like a funny first uh, start for significance. Are you willing to become a worm and no man? That's what Jesus did. Guess who's the most significant one in all the universe? Uh-huh, Jesus. And what did he do? He took the lowest place and became a servant. Washed our feet, became obedient unto death, even the death of a criminal. He became a worm and no man. And what, what's the starting point? What's the starting point for that great exalted position of a man? He has the preeminence. He has significance. Where do you find it? Well, let's start at the beginning. The starting line of great manhood. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, than that you should, that you sh then that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. One of the things I'd like to begin to talk about is what we could call the calling of God upon your life. As a man, we have a keen interest in this. And we call it in Christian circles, our calling. So do you know your calling, dear brother? Uh, <clears throat> still trying to work that out. And even if you ask any of us our calling, oftentimes we have a very specific thing that we give. Like I really feel called to orphans, or I feel called to Mongolia. In other words, we have placeholders there, but oftentimes we don't recognize how a calling works. Let's get down to the basis of calling in this Proverb, you see a calling. What, what does it say? Come up here. That was the calling. How did this man receive the calling? He took the lowest place. And when he took the lowest place, when did the calling come? Well, there's, there's something you could look at as a reverse calling. If you take too high of a place, you think too highly of yourself, you may get a calling too. What is it? Down the table. Uh, hey, buddy, you're sitting in a seat that belongs to someone I need to call up. Uh, could you stand up and go to the end of the table? Uh, that's a calling. Not the calling we're really looking for or talking about. When we think of a calling, we're thinking of something noble, something significant. You want a significant calling? Take the lowest place. 
The significant calling is made available to those who take the lowest place. That's who's going to be called up. Luke 14, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. Have you been invited? Yeah, you have. You've been invited into the kingdom of heaven. And the great feast is the life of Jesus Christ. So you have been invited to this feast. What are you supposed to do? Look for the lowest place in here. You seek out the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. You receive a calling. You're called by the living God. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. So, Say we're after honor. If we were going to describe it as men, eh, that's a pretty good word for it. We just, I don't know how to say it, but I just want to, I, I want to be honored. I, I, I want honor. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Uh, the, that place of importance, that place of respect, honor. Well, what does it say? Well, before that honor is humility. You want honor? Humility. How did Jesus get the honor? I know he already had it. He's God Almighty. But he modeled how a man ought to live. And he showed, hey guys, watch. You take the lowest place. And then what does your father do? He calls you to the highest place. Friend, come up here. Well, that's the story of Jesus. Before honor comes humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, We call it the throne room of grace. You know what the highest place is? It's called the throne room of grace. Who has access to the throne room of grace? Well, the humble. Those who take the lowest place will receive grace. The high calling. I'm going to say it this way. You have a high calling. I'm speaking to all the men, and yes, I am speaking to the women at the same time, but men, you have a high calling. Like, thank you. This message has been just trampling me under. Thank you for finally getting that out, Eric. I have a high calling. That's what I've been waiting for. Yeah. All right. Now, the high calling. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Well, that's quite a statement. So, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. By the way, students, what's your position? Okay, so if you're in Christ... What it says is, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So Christ, well, let's read, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Friend, come up here. He exalted him to the highest place. Friend, come up here. He was in the lowest of low places. He went into the earth. And then, friend, Take the highest place. Now, what's strange about this is, where is Jesus located right now, by the way? It's at the right hand of the Father in the highest of high places. Who has the highest calling? Jesus. The highest calling any man will ever receive was given to Jesus. Does he deserve it? You better believe it, he does. He's the faithful man. He's the righteous man. He's the perfect man. He did it. 
He took the lowest place and before honor came humility. And as a result, the model for masculinity was demonstrated in and through Jesus Christ. It was. But listen to this. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, where are you located again? And where is he? So he received the highest calling. And where are you? You're in him. What's your high calling? Your high calling is his calling. You serve him. You are in his agenda. He's the one that got the call. He's the one that deserved the call. I don't know about you. Measure your own goodness. You don't deserve any call. You deserve condemnation. And you're like, what about you, Eric? Yes, me too. We don't deserve this. But here we are as men saying, yes. And I, where am I again? I'm up there too with Jesus, aren't I? Where, where do we sit, said the disciples to Jesus. I want to sit at your right hand. There's only one way into that high place. And it isn't because you happen to be close buddies with the Messiah. It's that you deny yourself. You say, I need a Savior. You take the lowest place and you say, I am helpless. I don't have it. What was Peter? Peter had his own goodness. He was a massive fisherman, strong. And he's like, I'll stand with you, Jesus. Though all of them betray you, I will stand with you. What did Jesus say? You know, buddy, you're going to have to set down that goodness. All that manly strength you have, if you truly want to serve me, you're going to have to set that down. You'll deny me three times before the cock crows twice. Before honor comes humility. I'd like to say for all of us that it doesn't need to be humiliation. It's humility. You can choose right now to take a low place. You don't have to have the old Peter example brought to your soul in front of the courtyard. However, God loves you too much to not bring that humiliation to you if necessary. So which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now how does this affect you? And has raised us up together. Friends, come up. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Friend, come up. Who's he talking to? It's the humble one who is receiving grace. He's resisting the proud, but those that say, my goodness is insufficient. Who can find a faithful man? Who say, I found one. Jesus, I need your faithfulness. The faith of the Son of God needs to be the operative work in my life. I don't have it. Your good work is what I need. That humility is what accesses us. The high calling. Friend, come up here. Friend, come up here. We take the lowest place, and he brings us up to the highest. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. It's called the high calling. You've received a high calling. What's my high calling? Well, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, all the host of heaven, both of heaven and in hell, will actually have known by us, the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Whoa! Uh Uh-huh. But whose calling is this? This is the calling of Jesus Christ that for some reason he's condescended to let you share in. What's your calling? It's a high one, yes. You see, we have a call to significance. 
We have a call to a very, very, very high place. But we do not get there because of our own doing. We do not get there because of our own good deeds. We do not get there because of our own manliness, our own abilities, our own talent, our own intellect. And where did we get? Can we get ourselves to the high place? No! He is the only one that can get us to the high place. Our high calling is in him. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So where is that high calling of God? It's in Christ Jesus. You know what the word high calling here means? It's the calling to the highest place. That's what it means. We're always thinking, yeah, I have a high calling. And that means important. And it's like, yeah, I have a high calling in Christ Jesus. No, you, you're called to the highest place in Christ Jesus. You're called to where he is. That's where you find your life. Your purpose on this earth will only be realized when you understand that high calling, that you have been called to the highest place in Christ. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, you have a high calling. And here it is. Come boldly. This is the calling. Come. Come, friend. Come boldly. We're like, how? I don't have any goodness. You humbled yourself. And so now I'm calling you up. You took the lowest place, and now here's my commission to you. Here's my calling. Come boldly into the throne of grace, into the highest place. It's called the high calling. You have a high calling. Come boldly. Why? Because you need to obtain mercy, and you're going to need grace. Because you really do have a calling. You really do have a significant position in this earth. And if you're going to pull it off, you better know your high calling. Because it's your high calling that gives you the gusto in this earth to do it. So what is this high calling? What do we need this grace for? In Ephesians 4, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning and craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. I don't know if you heard all that. This is what you could call a high calling. So let's break it down. Until we all come to, so this is like what it's all for. No, until we come to this, God's not done. He's working on us. He's doing something. He's growing us up so that our life would shake this earth till we all come unto the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Do you guys recognize how noble and how big and how powerful, and get this, how significant that is. So as men, what do we have? Yeah, we want to be significant. But to be significant, you need to recognize that you're not significant. You need to recognize that your own goodness stinks. And you need to recognize that you need a savior. And as a result, you go to the bottom of the table. And you say, I'm the chief of sinners. And the chief of sinners, like Paul, he says, hey you, friend. Come up here. Sit with me in the heavenly places. You, you gave me a high calling, says Paul. I am seated with him in heavenly places. And now I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus so that I can receive grace so that I 
And the rest of those who are called up with me could know the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ? Oh! Until Christ is seen perfectly, fully, and clearly. So that's the concept here. Until Christ is seen perfectly, fully, and clearly. We're not done. There's a job. You see, your life isn't showing Jesus Christ perfectly, fully, and clearly. Oh, don't you know you have a high calling? Don't you know that you've been brought into the throne of grace? Hey, didn't you hear it? Come boldly. Because you need to obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. What's your time of need? Well, hey, buddy, you're supposed to be delivering the goods of Jesus Christ into this world. We need to see him perfectly, fully, and clearly. I'm not seeing it. Didn't you hear your high calling? It's to reveal the glory of God. That's what scripture says. So what's glory? Doxa in the Greek. Seeing something in its truest state. Its fullest, most correct, accurate portrayal of itself. The beauty, the magnificence, the grandeur, the splendor of an object resulting in awe, praise, and honor. One of the terms for it can be weightiness. And so the full weight of something. If you have a little matchbox car, it is a replica of a big car, but it doesn't hold the weight of it. But suddenly, if all you've seen is a matchbox car version, and suddenly, kaboom, one falls through the roof and lands here in the chapel, all of you would have been moved out of the way, don't worry. Suddenly, maybe I should have had it fall on the stage here. But suddenly, there's a full weight of something. You see what that weight brings. You see, we have oftentimes seen a matchbox size understanding of God Almighty. But have we seen his glory? Have we seen the full picture, the full weight, the full gravity of who he is? Whose job is it to show it? Well, I've, I don't know. We look around the room. Like, not me. You. It's the church of Jesus Christ, very specifically, the men of God. Now, the women of God can claim that just as fast. So the magnificent call. Now, all the men are sort of like, that's right. The call to significance. It's called the magnificent call. It sounds like a good movie. The magnificent call to those who take the lowest seat. Isn't that a funny way to get the magnificent call? Those who take the lowest seat get the magnificent call. I've given the illustration to Ellerslie many times of the ivory wall that is the impassable wall. It goes 10 million miles up, 10 million miles wide. It even goes 10 million miles into the dirt. You can't dig under it. You can't walk around it. You can't climb over it. It's impossible to scale. There's nothing you can do. But on the other side is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that sort of makes it difficult. Yeah, and there's nothing you can bring in your own goodness to scale it, to get around it, to go under it. And yet, when you finally let go of all that, Jesus Christ just sort of taps your, uh, your understanding and turns your face downward, and you see a little hole, a little mud down there too, it's a little hole that you can get on your belly and crawl through. And you're like, no way. No way am I going through that. Well, unless you do, <laughs> unless you get in that way, you can't get in. See, humility is the avenue through which we access the grandeur, or in this case, the magnificent call. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's speaking of Jesus. We shall bear the image of the faithful man. 
We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What image are you being transformed into? The image of God, the image of Jesus Christ, the image of the faithful man. Who's doing the work? The Spirit of God. For God has called us unto his kingdom and glory. What are you called to? And remember, you received a call. And some of you are like, my call's to China. Well, I'm going to make it more clear to you. Your call is unto his kingdom and glory. You're here to reveal him. It's that simple. We call this the will of God. People are always like, well, the will of God for me was to marry this person. The will of God for you, very specifically, is that you would reveal his glory and you would bear his image. Now, you do have specific and unique aspects of your life that God will do, and it may be to China, or may be to marry that person. But let's get something straight. We all are here for the same exact reason. And that reason isn't China, and that reason isn't marriage. That reason is his glory, that he would be seen. That's why we're here. So he hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. So what does that say? He's called you. Remember that? Come boldly to the throne of grace. You've been called to an eternal glory. To bear witness, to reveal the beauty, the majesty of his person. He hath called us to glory and virtue. Did you hear the call? I heard it. Eric, you are called to glory and virtue. Huh? How do I practically live that out? That doesn't sound like a very practical call. I was sort of expecting China or Nicaragua. I'm called to glory and virtue. I'm called to bear his image. I'm called to showcase wherever I am, whether that's China, Nicaragua, or Windsor, Colorado. I'm called to bear his nature. But how can I do that? I'm not going to be able to do it carrying around my own goodness, I'll tell you that. I can do it by laying down my goodness and turning in faith unto the faithful one. And then that faithful one wraps me in his righteousness, carries me into the highest place. As I humble myself, he exalts me with him into the throne room of grace. He says, ask the Father in my name. Ask the Father. You're clothed in me. You have access unto the Father. Now go after the grace. What do I need grace for? Because without it, you cannot live in this body down here on this earth. You cannot show any of me because you don't have it. You don't have anything in and of yourself to be able to demonstrate to the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God. But I have it. You see, the secret to great manhood is emptying yourself, becoming humble, and saying, he is the great man. I need the great man to clothe me in his great manness, to carry me to the Father, and then to stick the great manness in me, the very spirit that enabled him and the very spirit that raised him from the dead, to dwell in me and to demonstrate the faithful man. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So therefore, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you do, whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whether you're studying, whether you're praying, whether you're talking, whether you're reading, it doesn't matter what you're doing. All of life aims towards one end. He's seen. He is known. He is revealed. And up to this point, you haven't had much of an ability to do that in your life. Because oftentimes we're carrying around our own goodness, attempting to show off Jesus through our own means. Did you see my diligence? That's sort of like Jesus when he went to the cross. Did you see my intellect? I mean, he's a very intelligent guy. 
And it's sort of like him. We're attempting in our own Adam strength, our own firstborn life, to try and showcase God Almighty. And God's disgusted by it. He says, could we do this right? Who can find a faithful man? Who can find a faithful man? And guess what the answer was? Well, I guess I'll have to be the faithful man. And he came to this earth and was the faithful man. And that faithful man has become our high priest, our advocate, our intercessor. And he has made a way for us to come unto the Father so that we could become faithful men. That's how he does it. So here's the great hope of glory. Is there any hope of glory? Is there any faithful men alive today? There is a hope. There's a hope of faithful men again. There's a hope of glory. There's a hope that God will one day again be revealed. What is that hope? It's called Christ in you. You see, you must be in Christ, and that's how you get your high calling, is in Christ Jesus, because it's his high calling. But where does he take you? He takes you to the highest place. You are called to the highest place, and he says, now ask. Ask in my name of the Father. Come boldly. That's the calling. Come boldly into my throne room of grace, where you may obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. And this life is time of need. And what do we get? What's our great ask? Could I have whatever you have, almighty God, that will enable me to fulfill my high calling so that I, in my call to significance, could truly be significant in this earth? He goes, I have exactly what you need. What's that? It's called Christ living in you, also known as the Holy Spirit. It's the life of God imparted to live within us and enable us to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. The purpose of a man, well, it's very simply stated, to reveal the glory of God. Why are you here? You better know why you're here. Because if I were to ask you even before this message, like, tell me, why are you here on earth? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's to do good things, to go, do good deeds. God would probably be happy with that. Well, let's just bake it down to what the Bible says. It's to reveal the glory of God. That's why you're here. That's what your calling is. You've been given a high calling. Why? So that you could get the grace to reveal who he is. The role of a man. That was the original title of this message. The role of a man. To uniquely reveal the glory of God in his assigned jurisdiction. You know, men and women are different. And we both have jurisdictional assignments. And so look at, look at a man. Boyhood, manhood. You know, a girl could never be, never have a boyhood. Isn't that a strange thought? There's girls in here like, I wonder what that would be like. But a girl can never have a boyhood or a manhood. Isn't that strange? It's like that's something that we as men get to uniquely walk in. Now, women can be leaders, but men are assigned very specifically in leadership roles. Husbandhood, that's something that is very unique to us as men. And the girls in here will never get to be a husband. A father, fatherhood. That is a unique thing to the way that God has built men. And so there is a role to a man, and that role is, let me read this again, to uniquely reveal the glory of God in his assigned jurisdiction. So what's our purpose? To reveal the glory of God. But then we've been given specific roles in this earth, and that is to reveal him through our manhood, to reveal his glory through our leadership, to reveal his glory through our husbandhood, and to reveal his glory through our fatherhood. Knowing our unique role, I don't know if I should say it. I think I should just go through this section. We love our uniqueness as men, and the American culture specializes in fostering the concept of independence and uniqueness. 
By the way, God made us unique. Sort of the old classic, uh, we all have our own unique fingerprint. There's no one on earth like us. There's nothing wrong with that. That's true. However, we have a tendency, remember our own goodness? What do we oftentimes do? We try and get our own image. We try and develop our uniqueness. What sets you apart? If you want to be a good business, one of the first rules of having a good business is what sets you apart. What makes you different? Well, if you want to have significance in this earth, what do you need to do? What sets you apart? What makes you different? But as a Christian, what is our significance? What makes us like the rest of the church of Jesus Christ? Isn't that an odd thing? We all believe in Jesus Christ. You know, the church doesn't work unless we figure out what unites us as opposed to what makes us unique and different. It's what unites us. Denominationalism is all focused on what makes us different. However, the Bible is taking us to Jesus. We all have the same significant high calling in Christ Jesus. And we all have the purpose of revealing his glory on this earth. So knowing our unique role, this is a bait. That's what I'm going to call it. It's not that it's false, but it's a bait. And we go after it the wrong direction. We have a lot of young bucks in here. And one of the number one things when you read the great men and uh, women of the faith is you begin to think, so what am I here on earth for? What is my unique role in such a time as this? The unique role of George Mueller to demonstrate that simple childlike faith in the word of God still works today and thus to rouse the faith of a withering church the world over. This man simply believed his God and though... In his generation, it seemed like simple faith, simple childlike faith in God had gone away, and no one just simply took the word of God and said, that's true today. If it says that you, faith the size of a mustard seed can tell this mountain to be moved and thrown in the midst of the sea, then it's true. And the world, the Christian world around him had become too smart, too intellectual. And so he said, watch. And he said, I have a calling of God, and that is to demonstrate to this generation that simple faith in the word of God still works today. And that man has such a story. I tell you what, I've been greatly impacted by the life of George Mueller and his, get this, his unique role in bringing to bear the glory of God in his generation. The unique role of William Tyndale to translate the Bible into English and to cause the plowboy to know more of the scriptures than the Pope. That's what he said to the Pope, by the way, when the Pope told him you know, how bad it was, what he was doing. He said, uh, well, if I have my way, I'll make sure that the plowboy knows more of the scriptures than you. And they did. Uh, You see, William Tyndale played a role. God used him. God used him in a specific way to, get this, reveal his glory. You see, William Tyndale had a high calling. And he went into that throne room of grace and obtained mercy and grace for help in time of need. And though the world stood against him in his day, he revealed the glory of God. And he was used uniquely. The unique role of William Wilberforce to awaken a hard-hearted world to the plight of the African slaves and to see those slaves rescued and the slave trade abolished. Now, if any of you have ever studied any of those three lives, if you're a young man, and I'm guessing it affects young women the same way, or old or young, it doesn't make any difference, we want to have a life of significance. We want to make an impact, put a dent into this world. Is that wrong? Is it wrong that I don't want my life to be just a flash and then gone? When I leave this earth, I want there to be something, some residue, something significant left behind. I want to be remembered. Could there be a biography written about me? Just something. Is it wrong that we desire that? You see, when you make that your focus and you miss what causes that to even happen in the first place, 
You see, we want to be significant as men, so we hold on to our own goodness, and we end up focusing on us. But what is the secret to truly having a call to significance? Laying us down. It's not about me, God, and I don't care if I'm never remembered. But to do that one singular thing for us men is almost impossible, isn't it? Okay, God, I'll lay that down, but I have to be remembered. Okay, God, I'll lay that down, but I cannot be forgotten. Please, no, don't do that to me. Are you willing? Are you willing to take the lowest place, even at the risk of never being called up? What if you always sit in that low place? No. No, I can't. I have to be important. You see, God has called the men in this room to be George Mueller's, to be William Tyndale's, and to be William Wilberforce's. It's the truth. And I wouldn't, you know, budge on that point. I know it sounds like a contradiction of everything I'm saying. It's like, no, no, you're called to be a worm and no man. No, you actually have a significant call in the kingdom of heaven. But the way to see that significant call unfurl in your life is to not make that significant call in your unique role in changing the world your focus. The secret to seeing a significant calling upon your life is to make Jesus your focus and his unique role in this universe your priority. Paul says, I came to speak one thing. And that wasn't about his unique role. Did Paul have a unique role? Sure did. He was the apostle unto the Gentiles. We all know it when you read scripture. It's like, yeah, he had a unique role. I want a unique role. But what was Paul focused on? Jesus and him crucified. He says, that's my agenda. That's what I'm about. And as a result, God could use him. And God used him in a unique way to do the same thing that every other Christian throughout all of history has been called to, and that is to reveal the glory of God. William Wallace, did he have a unique role? You better believe it, he did. Martin Luther, what's history without Martin Luther? Did he have a unique role? Uh Uh-huh. Johannes Gutenberg, Gutenberg Press, could you imagine life on earth without the printing press? It changed history. To most people, it'd say it's probably in the top one or two things in all of history that is the most significant world-altering thing. And they printed a Bible. That was the first thing they printed, called the Gutenberg Bible. George Washington, significant, unique. Yeah, the history of our nation here, if you've ever studied American, well, true American history. I did say that. Uh, George Washington, an amazing man. Abraham Lincoln. George Washington Carver. You ever studied George Washington Carver? One of my favorite studies is to study that man, the significance of his life unto the slaves in his time. He was, a, he was a young black boy that literally changed the world. There's nothing special about him, but he believed in God. And one of his key questions was, God, you made a peanut. Why did you make a peanut? Show me why you made a peanut. And I don't remember how many inventions that that man, George Washington Carver, had from one peanut. Do you guys remember what it was? It was 100, 200, was it? 60. 60, that's a small number compared to my big number. Maybe it was 60, yes? What was it? 500, that's more like it, 60. (laughs) From a peanut, and peanut butter was just one of them. That's amazing. Hudson Taylor, he changed modern missions. C.T. Studd, awakened missions in Africa. What an extraordinary man. Reese Howes changed the course of World War II. Did they have a unique role? Absolutely they did. And so as men, as we hear that, as we see a list and a lineup like that, what do we do? 
God, could you somehow put me in that list? Could you somehow, somehow just cause my life to measure up to that? I don't want you just to measure up to that. I want you to go far beyond that. Because you're focused on the perfect man, the one who is far beyond any of those men. You see, your calling isn't dictated by them. They're not your savior. They're symbols, pictures of what God can do in a man who yields. That's what they represent. You are a representation of something much bigger than you. You are about the glory of God. You're not about you. The bait to call ourselves up to a higher seat. The dangers of focusing on our unique role. When you focus on your unique role, then you're constantly trying to position yourself to have a higher seat. Our American culture is all about promotion. All about advertising and marketing. And the advertising and marketing starts with us. I need to be seen. I need to get my name out there. I need to make sure I build relationships, create a network. And so I need to make sure that everyone knows who I am. So when they come to the decision-making processes, they'll say, oh yeah, I remember that guy. And as a result, we are positioning ourselves for our high calling. The dangers of focusing on our unique role. Not tripping over our unique role. You see, that's what trips us. What is my unique role? Why am I here? But focusing on his unique role in our lives and in this world. You know that he's the lone means of salvation? He has a unique role. Out of all the men that have ever lived on this earth, his role is the unique one. We're like all men. We've gone astray and we're all headed to hell. You want to know who's unique? He is. And his unique role is the only thing that saves us. So instead of thinking about your uniqueness, why don't we think about his uniqueness? It's called holy, holy, holiness. He's other than, other than, other than this world. We're just like it. So when we focus on his unique role, suddenly, you know what? We begin to understand what our role is, and that is to know him, to be found in him, to reveal his glory. Not getting distracted with what makes us special. We're always focused on what makes us unique and special, but fixating on that which makes Christ Jesus so special. Not dealing with what special work we are called to, but specializing in knowing everything about his special work. Have you studied the cross? Have you made that your focal point, his unique work, his uniqueness, his specialness? When you make him your focal point, you know what that's how you become what you ought to be. That's what a faithful man is built out of. Not tripping over the establishing of my own personal life, health, and operation, but seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and knowing that everything that is specific and unique to our lives will be unfurled by Christ Jesus in his time and in his way. You know what the Bible actually says? Look, I know the rest of the world is focused on what they're wearing, you know, how they're living, like what house they're in, uh, what they're eating. The rest of the world is caught up in making it through this life and coming up with their own significance, their own comfort system. I'm telling you, says Jesus, you seek first my kingdom. Isn't that an interesting statement? My kingdom, what's a kingdom? A kingdom is a king's domain. A domain is a territory of rulership. And so he's basically saying, you seek first my domain or my jurisdiction of rulership which is what? It's you. You seek first and you say, this belongs to you. My life isn't about me. Hey, I'm getting rid of my goodness. I need yours. 
This life is for his glory. That's how all those other things will be taken care of. You know what Jesus says? You make me your focus. You make my agenda your focus. You make my glory your focus. I'll take care of all those things. What about my significance? Yeah, that too. You know, you can't help but be significant when you give your life to Jesus and make him your focal point. Have you ever seen a father that doesn't consider each of his kids significant? I mean, what a bad father that would be. But you know what? Every father, their children are significant to them. And what do they do? They pull out their wallets and show pictures. It's like, yeah, and here's my uh, three-year-old. He's so cute. And everyone else is like, It's like, oh, no, no, look at this picture. I have five more of them, too. You see, he loves to show off his children. And the God of the universe is going to use your life. He will. He will not waste it. He will not squander it. He will use it wisely in this earth. You focus on him. Let him focus on you. You focus on his significance. Let him deal with your significance. If he wants you to be significant, he can deal with that. That's not your job. He will care for you. You care for his glory. The return of the faithful man. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. So let's talk about the leader. This is the return of the faithful man. The leader who is ever believing, ever confident in God's salvation. Remember we talked about what faith is? It is decided, it is loyal, and it is marked by an ardent love and passion. So this leader is ever believing. Once he believes, he ever believes. He will not budge from that position. He is immovable and fixed in that position. That's what a faithful leader would be. So he's ever believing, ever confident in God's salvation. The leader who is ever immovable. The leader who is ever calm, ever fearless. The leader who is ever joyful. Imagine following a man like this. I tell you what, what happens in the earth when faithful men return to the stage of time? Could you imagine standing with a leader who is like that? The leader who is ever pure. The leader who is ever truthful, ever trustworthy, ever a promise keeper. What have we been surrounded by? Leaders who fail. Leaders who fall. Leaders who say one thing with their mouth and live another with their lives. Leaders who are hypocrites, live duplicitous lives. Who can find a faithful man? Have you found him? Because I tell you what, faithful men are once again supposed to walk this earth because they have heard the high calling and have entered into the throne room of grace at the beckoning of the Most High God and have found grace for help in time of need. The leader who is ever diligent and ever hardworking, the leader who is ever guarded with his tongue, the husband, the husband who is ever understanding, handling his wife's heart as delicate and fragile, the husband who is ever responsible, the husband who is ever thoughtful, the husband who is ever giving, the husband who is ever faithful, the husband who is ever forgiving, the husband who is ever defending. Let's admit it. This is perfection. This is what we esteem. Prince Charming, this is what we long for, the men and the women. There isn't a man in here that doesn't want to be that. He's just tired of being told he needs to be that and he doesn't know how to be it. There's a faithful man who's the secret. Stop trying to whip it up in your own. Stop trying to be the ever-giving, ever-faithful, ever-forgiving, and ever-defending. 
in your own strength. Go to him, you've received the high calling. Enter the throne room of grace and let him be the faithful one in and through you. The father, the father who is ever consistent, the father who is ever patient, the father who is ever preserving of his children's dignity, the father who is ever pointing to Christ, the father who is ever imparting, the father who is ever on duty, the man, the man who is ever the happy to suffer, the man who is ever advocating for the weak, the man who is ever speaking truth, the man who is ever pouring out his strength, the man who is ever courageous, the man who is ever honorable, the man who is ever ready, the man who is ever manly. Listen to this last one. The man who is ever Jesus. I I want that. I don't know about you, but I'm willing to dump my own goodness. I'm willing to declare to all of you that I am not like that in my own strength. I have nothing in my own pockets to emulate that. I've tried for most of my life to be the sort of guy that would impress the world. I'm tired of trying to impress you. I'm impressed by one, and that's Jesus Christ. I want what he has, and I'm willing to forsake anything in my life that has ever impressed you so that I could get that which truly has impressed itself upon my soul, and that's him. And so I lay down me and take up him. I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. But it's not me who now lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by his faithfulness. You see, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by the one who is full of this behavior. It is his behavior. This behavior is him. And I live by that, not by my own gusto and own strength. So what is the role of the man? To die daily that Christ may live. To disappear daily that Christ may be seen. To empty self daily, that Christ may fill him fully. To pick up his cross daily, that the power of Christ may be declared in this earth. How are you going to find significance when you do that? Hey, isn't significance found when people see you? Significance is found when people see Jesus through you. Because that's why you were created. You want to be what you're supposed to be? That's how. Die daily that Christ may live. To disappear daily that Christ may be seen. To empty self daily that Christ may fill him fully. To pick up his cross daily that the power of Christ may be declared in in this earth. To forsake his own personal glory daily that the glory of Christ might be manifest. To forsake the building of his own kingdom daily, daily that the kingdom of Jesus might be established. And to take the lowest place daily that Jesus Christ may always hold the preeminence in all things. Oh, and one final thing. A man is to be a bearer of the image of Jesus Christ, a clear portrayal of his glory, ever immovable, ever calm, ever fearless, ever joyful, ever pure, ever truthful, ever trustworthy, ever a promise keeper, ever diligent, ever hardworking, ever guarded with his tongue, ever understanding, ever responsible, ever thoughtful, ever giving, ever faithful, ever forgiving, ever defending, ever consistent, ever patient, ever preserving of the dignity of others, ever pointing to Christ, ever imparting, ever on duty, ever ever the happy to suffer, ever advocating for the weak, ever speaking truth, ever pouring out his strength, ever courageous, ever honorable, ever ready, ever manly, and ever a picture of Jesus. How? By the power of Jesus Christ working in him. So first things first. This is how we finish. But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Seek him. Make him your focal point. Make him your life. Empty you. Be filled with him. Put off the old man and his deeds. Put on the new man. Put on Jesus Christ. And then his cross is your cross. And his death, your death. And the old man, the old you, dead. His burial, your burial. Your old life, no longer seen. His resurrection, your resurrection. You have newness of life in Christ Jesus. His ascension, his exaltation, his calling, your calling. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. All things are under his feet, and you are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And all things are under your feet. And now he says, ask, little one. Ask. Ask of the Father. I've brought you all this way, and I've given you this high calling so that you could have access unto the Father, and you could get that which the Father has always had for you, but you've been cut off from the Father, and that is grace. You will have the power of God to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.